evidence and answers. Tune to Evidence and Answers with your host, Pat Zucaran. Pat is an author, teacher, and international speaker in the arena of Christian apologetics, the defense of the Christian faith. Each year, Pat hosts an apologetics conference located in beautiful Hawaii. Today, we are continuing our broadcasts taken from the 2018 Apologetics Conference. We will be listening to one of our question and answer sessions. You'll find this broadcast extremely interesting as our panel of guest speakers will be providing biblical answers to some very tough questions taken from our attendees of the conference. If you're unable to hear this entire broadcast, all of our messages are available on our website. That's evidenceandanswers.org. Now, on to today's broadcast. How does one begin a conversation about spiritual things kindly and correctly in a way that won't turn away the other person from opening up? Well, it's a good question. How does one begin a conversation? One thing I mentioned in our workshop is that it's not only the proclamation, but it's the affirmation of the gospel. So when your life is consistent with what you say, I think that provides a context that makes it more comfortable for people to talk about spiritual things in the context of the workplace or wherever you are. So I know I think I think your your life needs to represent what you say well. And that provides again an avenue to discuss spiritual things uh, with other people that is not offensive because they see a validity to it. Great. My instinct is always to start with questions. And the reason is, is because it, it, it's a polite way to draw people out. It creates an atmosphere of, of relaxed curiosity and interest, and you don't have to start immediately with a spiritual issue. But just by conversing in a friendly way, it has a way of, of I think, just softening the environment. So I want you to consider that. I also heard, sometimes they get asked, what specific question can you ask to get into a spiritual conversation? And I think that this isn't one necessarily I use a lot. I would probably use it more as time goes on because I just heard of it recently. But my style is more to maneuver in using general questions. But if you want a specific question dealing with spiritual things, ask somebody, what do you think happens when you die? Just leave it open-ended. It's not a springboard to preach. You want it to be a genuine question where you're listening to what they say. What do you think happens when you die? Great. My instinct is to always go to questions, the Colombo tactic, but because they're so versatile. They're so non-combative, non-confrontive. So, I mean, when people ask me questions like this, I'm always gonna go there some way. I'm gonna draw the person out. And there are a gazillion questions you can ask people. Make a commitment to just ask at least half a dozen questions in every conversation. You're just gonna go in there and as the curious, friendly person drawing the other person out. People love it. They love it when you ask questions, when you show an interest in their life. But there is a truth that most of us are not good at asking questions. We need to practice. Uh, some of the evaluations I read were that we need to practice asking questions. And, and I think a lot of us aren't good because we haven't actually practiced it. Yeah. By the way, if you don't do it, it doesn't work. <laughs> <laughs> 
Okay, good. Next question. So, Jesus was, is God, and he died on the cross while God poured out his wrath on him. How does God die while he pours out his wrath on himself? It's a Trinitarian question. Well, first of all, remember, God is a triune God. So that second part, how does God die while he pours out wrath on himself? God the Father is functioning as the judge, okay? And Jesus Christ is the perfect sacrifice that receives God's judgment. So that's why, you know, the doctrine of the Trinity is necessary for salvation. You need someone that bears the sins of the world and someone being the righteous judge. And I'm not sure what he meant by when he says when God died. When Jesus died on the cross, that doesn't mean he went into oblivion or he ceased to exist. Okay? Simply means that the physical body of Christ died as a sacrifice for sin. But he didn't cease, you know, to exist. He was still existing fully, bearing our sins and, you know, battling sin and death. So that's how it happened. Uh, you have God the Father being the righteous judge and Jesus Christ being the Son, the sacrifice. Okay, so remember the Trinity, one God revealed in three distinct persons. Excellent. Well, that's well done. Yep, mm -hmm. good job. A lot of times these kinds of questions come up because a person has not grasped well the concept of the Trinity. I've always said that Trinity is a solution, it's not a problem. There's a book I'm reading right now called, uh, I think it's called Delighting in the Trinity, and it, it explores a lot of these different things. How many things that the Trinity actually helps to solve in terms of theological problems or just problems with regards to the nature of reality? God is able to die only if he does something unbelievable in a certain sense, absolutely unique is what I mean, and that is take on a human nature to himself. And he does that in the second person of the Trinity. Only with a human nature can God die, but as uh, Pat's pointing out, it isn't the divinity, the divine nature that's dying, going away. It's the human nature that dies, but the divine nature in the person of the Son, or the Word, the second person, is taking the punishment and the pain and the sense of rejection that is coming from the Father. And so it is much more a grievous suffering uh, than any of us could ever imagine. In fact, the last words Jesus said on the cross was, Father, into thy hands I command my spirit. Good. Okay, next one. I would encourage the person to last question. Really oh, take a look at the Trinity. <laughs> Can you elaborate on your statement last night that the book of John doesn't include one word about social justice. Sure. Yeah, or Jesus' ministry to the poor and oppressed. So, the book of John does not include one word that could be construed as having to do with social justice. That's my elaboration. I am trying to underscore the point. And partly because the Gospel of John is considered the most elegant characterization of the person and work of Christ. It comes at the end of the first century. It's after the other three Gospels are completed. And so John kind of does the capstone here. So the question really is, what is Jesus' life all about? Why did Jesus come? And there are some Christians, uh, principally what might be known, and they call themselves the red-letter Christians, that focus on the red letters of the New Testament, which, by the way, are no more inspired than the dark letters. They're all equally God's Word, just saying. And so then what they construe out of what Jesus taught 
is a message that is principally a message about social justice, okay? Now, I was troubled by that. And there was a guy who wrote an article because I didn't think it was, an, it was a balanced approach. And he wrote an article, what if we actually did what Jesus said to do? Or believed uh, what Jesus said? And he's making a reference to the social gospel. So I decided I was going to find every reference in the gospels to social justice because it would help and helping the poor because it would help me to kind of get a sense of where the balance was of Jesus teaching and so I thought I'd start in the Gospel of John I read from the first verse to the last verse and there's only one reference to the poor and Jesus said the poor you always have with you in other words he's being dismissive of the poor by comparison to his mission okay Nothing else is said about the poor in that book or about social justice. Jesus gave four major discourses in his life. He, did, he gave the, the Sermon on the Mount, the Bread of Life Discourse, the Olivet Discourse, and the Upper Room Discourse, which is one-third of the Gospel of John, okay? In the entire Upper Room Discourse, he never mentions the poor or social justice. In the entire Bread of Life discourse in John chapter 6, he never mentions the poor or social justice. In the entire Olivet discourse, he never mentions the poor or social justice. Ah, but when you get to the Sermon on the Mount, blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are the poor in spirit. In other words, people who have spiritual poverty. He's not talking about what's in your checkbook. He's talking about your, your attitude the difference between the Pharisee who's in, in the synagogue saying, oh, look at all the wonderful things that I do for you, Jesus describes, and the tax gatherer in the back lowering his head, beating his breast, saying, God have mercy on me, a sinner. Okay? Jesus was concerned with the poor in spirit. Now, the Jews, as a result of their prophetic teaching, were to care for the poor. And so there are casual men mentions by Jesus to that fact, and by Paul too, taking care of the poor. So it's not that it, is not, it isn't a Christian value, it is. But it isn't why Jesus came. And Jesus, turns out, didn't speak hardly at all to the issue. And when he does mention the poor, it is often to make a different point. When you give alms to the poor, don't give it in front of everybody, make a big deal about it. Give it in secret, and your father in secret will reward you. That's not about the poor, that's about religious hypocrisy. That's what that's about. He's using the poor as an example. So I'm just trying to put this in perspective. I realized when I read through the Gospel of John, I had solved the problem that I was after. Because if in the whole Gospel of John, there's not a single reference to taking care of the poor, this could not be the reason why Jesus came. Jesus came for a different reason. My concern is the social gospel, social justice, capturing the minds of a lot of young Christians is drowning out the reason that Jesus came. It was not for social justice, but that is really politically correct right now. It is a cause celeb, and so you'll be really admired for doing that. We ought to do that, but not to the exclusion of the more important issue, the person and the work of Christ, which is not politically correct. Okay, That's my concern. so you're dealing with an argument of greater and lesser. Yeah. Okay, next question. Why do some good people die early? Oh, great question. Come on, Dr. Craig. Let's let the doctor answer that. I'll answer it. Go ahead. <laughs> For those of you who haven't, who didn't go to my talk, I mentioned that 
there's that best-selling book. So those who came to the talk already, the second time I'm saying that, uh, of that person, the title of the book, a New York Times bestseller, is Everything Happens for a Reason and Other Lies I Loved. And it's a story of that reporter, not reporter, she's a faculty on Duke Divinity um, uh, School, grew up in a Mennonite background, and she, she's famous for having written this book on megachurches and the prosperity gospel. And then she comes down with stage four, I believe it's ovarian cancer, and is writing about her journey. Much of the book is the practical part of what not to say to people who have a life-limiting illness. But as the sarcasm is in that title, everything, there's a reason for everything and other lies I've loved, it's really kind of that attack against, sarcastic attack against Romans 8.28. All things work together for good. And indeed, therefore, if that is true, why do some good people die early? And my voice is going, and I know it took about five minutes to kind of explain basically that it's because we have that second half of that verse that because we love God, to those who love God and are called according to his purpose, and as the verses go after that, is God knew us and loved us from the very beginning and had a plan of redemption for us, and it's we're confident, therefore, of his calling. And the rest of it ends up that neither height nor depth or any uh, life or death can separate us from the love of God. And that is where our confidence comes from. And the bedrock, that is to me how I answer that question for somebody who is sarcastic about the first part of that verse, as well as that other book that came out, Why Do Bad Things Happen to Good People? So that's my opinion, but there's, there's others here who I'm sure can amplify on that. Good. What was it that Paul said for me to live is? Christ to die is? There's a whole part there we need to learn and understand. By the way, I've done over 1,500 funerals. I've buried about every kind of person and place you can imagine. To die if you know Jesus is glorious gain. And we get it switched really quick. Okay? Let's do the next one. What happens after death? How long has God been? How long has God been? And what is reality? Not quite sure on the second part, but go All for right. it. I'll answer the first part and let Greg answer this next. <laughs> what happens after death? Yeah, uh, the Bible's clear, 2 Corinthians 5.8, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. At death, our physical body dies and goes to the grave, but your immaterial part, your soul and spirit, your emotions, your thinking, your personality, your being, the immaterial part of you goes immediately, for those who have trusted Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior, goes immediately to be with the Lord. Those who have rejected Christ are immediately separated from Him, you know, forever in a place called hell. We see that in Luke chapter 16, the rich man died, went to hell, Lazarus died and went to paradise. And so... The immaterial part of us goes to be with the Lord or away from Him eternally. What is reality? Well, I think the second question, how long has God been, is a, is a question about 
where God came from, maybe. It's a little ambiguous. That's why I'd need a clarification. But sometimes atheists will ask the question, well, who created God? And they, Richard Dawkins does this. Michael Shermer does this. He did it in a debate that I was with him. And it's not a fair question, an appropriate question to ever ask a Christian. When Michael Shermer asked me this on this radio debate we did together, I said, Michael, when he said, who, who made God or who created God? I said, Michael, you don't believe in God, so you don't believe that God, anybody created God because you don't believe in God. Okay, I don't believe that anyone created God because God is eternal. Nobody in this conversation believes that God was created, so why are you asking the question, who created God? And I know why they ask it, because it appeals to the crowd. They know better. God never, never was created. He never came into existence. He's eternal. He's an eternal being. There's nothing unusual about that, nothing bizarre. There's nothing contradictory about that. Sometimes that is brought up when we talk about who created the universe, but only because we know the universe came into existence, and it's fair to ask what caused it to come into existence. Richard Dawkins, who doesn't know the answer to that question, just fires back another question, well, who created God? He said, even kids know how to answer, ask that question. And my response is, you're right. It's because they're kids. They don't know better than to realize that that is not an appropriate question to ask of a being that is self-existent. Now, it doesn't mean that God does exist. It means that if he does exist in the self-existent form that we believe he does, then we don't need to answer that question because that question doesn't apply to us. God has always been. Now, regarding the question, what is reality? That's the question. What is the nature of reality, I think, is the, maybe the heart of that question. What is, what is reality actually like? Well, we have some tools that allow us to figure that out. We have our senses that deliver us, it seems to be reasonably accurate information about the way the world is, and we can test it. Just like I gave you the illustration about my GPS. So if my GPS says that this church is located in a certain place, I can put that to the test. I follow the directions, then I arrive at the church. Now I know that something true about reality based on how I tested it. It's a very simple example, but we, can, we do that all the time because we are truth-seeking kind of creatures. We are always testing the world to come to true conclusions about what reality is like. And I think that we can use the same kind of things, the same procedures, to test the immaterial realm that we use to test the material realm. I mean, there are differences, of course, I'm not using my five senses, but I am using a sense that is other than my five senses. Uh, look at when you, when you look at a couple being sweet together, we can say, see how they love each other. Wait a minute, what did you say? See how they love. I don't see any love. All I see is two people. Where's the love? Well, the love is not material, right? But there is a way that we can perceive it based on other things that we can actually see with the eyes. So we have a seeing perception through what our eyes can see. All right? I asked one person once, do you know what you're thinking right now? And he said, of course I do. I said, well, do, are you feeling it? Tasting it, touching it, hearing it, smelling it? No. In other words, you have an ability to know something, your own thoughts, through a different faculty than the five senses. Well, of course you do. We do this all the time. This is just meant to get you thinking about this whole world that we're in touch with that's a non-physical world that we access all the time and we can know some things about it.
And that's what we are doing when we're talking about apologetics. Thank you. Okay, next question. This probably will be our last one. As succinctly and practically as possible, how would you define Christianity to a non-Christian? Let's have all four of you do it succinctly and practically. Go for it. Well, I just would say it's a relationship with the personal God, and that's how I reflect Christianity. Dr. Craig? I can't be succinct, so I just agree. Okay. Go ahead. That's fine. I say that Christianity is all about reality. It's about creation. It's about a Savior. It's about God who redeemed us from sin and death and how I can have a personal relationship with that God through His Son, Jesus Christ. Greg? Paul said in Romans 8 that anyone who does not have the Spirit of God is none of His. So a Christian is someone who possesses the Spirit because they put their trust in Jesus and therefore were sealed by the Spirit. Also, the word Christian is a made-up word that people used initially to make fun of Christians. The disciples were first called Christians in Antioch. So this is another way of understanding it. A Christian is a disciple that is a follower of Jesus of Nazareth. Great. Good job, guys. Okay, next question. For non-Christians, the idea that one person's decision to eat one piece of forbidden fruit would result in suffering, destruction, and death for the billions of souls to follow is hard to believe. So doesn't the sheer magnitude of the cost of this one decision outweigh the offense? Where is justice in this? Well, okay, I, I don't know if I can answer this to that person's satisfaction, and maybe it does have to do with the question of justice, but the fact is, is that small decisions that human beings make have powerful ramifications in the lives of people. And it's just the way the world works, okay? All it takes is one person to push one button to set off a, a series of events that results in billions of lives lost in virtually an instant. That's just the nature of the way the world works. People make one act of indiscretion, a husband out of town, away from his wife and family, one act of indiscretion destroys that family and the lives of those children for the rest of their lives they suffer. That's just the way it works. That is the power of sin in reality. It has consequences far beyond what we ever intend. That's why when people say, well, I can do whatever I want as long as I'm not hurting anybody, you have no idea how much harm you are going to cause by doing the wrong things that you do under the guise of not hurting someone. So part of the answer to this is, the person who wants to minimize, how can I put it, there's a kind of a, a lack of a balance here. It's just one little act that caused all this other stuff, but that's the way life works. One little act can cause lots of awful things. Now, if the question there is, is it one little act that results in everybody being punished forever in hell? No, that isn't the case. It's one little act that broke the world that then results in other people doing other evil things that they are held responsible for. So it's more complex a circumstance than this question suggests. But this is the kind of question that a lot of atheists ask. They want to look at the, the one little act and the consequence, and they say, well, that, that's not 
just or that's not appropriate or that doesn't make any sense. But it turns out when we look at the way life works, it makes lots of sense because in fact, little actions do cause lots of harm. And the people who cause the harm are properly held responsible for the harm they cause. Great answer. The converse is true as well. Through one man's act, we have eternal life. So through the suffering of one man, he gained eternal life for all of us. Amen. Once again, our time has come to a close. Thank you for joining us here on Evidence and Answers Radio Broadcast. We hope you enjoyed Pat's show today. If you are interested in having Pat speak at your church, Bible study, or perhaps holding an apologetics conference, please give him a call locally in Hawaii. It's 483-0586. Or you may contact him through the Evidence and Answers website. That's evidenceandanswers.org. Evidence and Answers relies on generous support from you, our listeners. To keep this broadcast on the air, you have the opportunity to donate. Head on over to our website. Once again, that's evidenceandanswers.org. And you may do so right there online. You'll find we have a wide variety of resources available to you. Everything from atheism to Zen Buddhism, including articles, additional audio for you to listen to or download, as well as Pat's books. So be sure and share our website with your family, friends, and your church. Evidence and Answers is grateful for our key sponsor, Highland Capital Management, providing investors with alternative investment solutions. To learn more, visit them online at hcmlp.com. Join us again next time on the air or online as we provide compelling reasons for faith in Christ. That's Evidence and Answers with Pat Zucran. Yeah.